Hello, let me introduce myself. My name is Callum. I serve as one of the other ministry apprentices here at the chapel. Thank you, Dan, for leading us through our service so far. Um, as we were reading 1 Samuel 7, uh, we're going to be focusing and learning from the Bible in our sermon this evening. So do keep it out in front of you. Uh, but before we begin, let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is living and active. And this is the way that you speak to us. Thank you for preserving it for us. Help us to listen to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm wondering, have you ever worked under a great leader? Maybe it was a, a boss or maybe a, a teacher from school. It makes all the difference to a job, doesn't it? I had a, a really good boss in one of my old jobs uh, who was just great. He was always busy, always super busy, but always had time for me. It was great. It always felt like he had your back. And this attitude was infectious on the rest of the team. When I first came into the team, you got a sense that everybody had my back. An infectious nature of one man spread to the entire team. It made turning up to work in the morning an absolute joy. And it made even the most mundane of tasks actually enjoyable under him. I wonder though if you've maybe had the opposite experience, a bad boss. My friend, for example, was mocked behind his back by his boss, or rather it would have been behind his back had it not been the email that he was mocking him was sent directly to him. How would you feel turning up for work the following morning after that? The manager's attitude sapped morale and the behavior was evident throughout the team. Well, whether it is a, a cruel or a kind boss, whether it is a limp or a leading boss, the impact of leaders can be seen and felt by those they represent and those they are responsible for. And we can definitely see that in the Bible and in particular in this book that we are studying, 1 Samuel. God often brings about judgment on Israel by giving them leaders who their sinful hearts are craving after, or giving them over to powerful, evil leaders from enemy nations around them. Punishment arrives either in the form of increased internal corruption or by losing homes, lands, and lives to other nations. Now, it's been a month since we were last in this book, 1 Samuel, so let's have a little bit of a recap to see what God has been doing in the story so far. We started with the corrupt priestly leaders, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Greed, adultery, and contempt for God were there values of their management style. It's no wonder that God brings about a lost battle, 
and a lost ark in chapter four to the Philistines when the elders try to use God's holy items as mere lucky charms for their own personal agenda. But last time we saw that God doesn't even need the Israelites in order to bring about his purposes as he heaps plagues on the Philistines and the ark is sent back to Israelite territory. But the Israelites are still rudderless and rather clueless when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant and the covenant God behind it all. A year passes, another year, another. 20 years in all. The Philistines are still an ominous threat on their borders. And there's a distinct feeling in Israel that something is just not right. Something is missing. And it's into this story that we pick up halfway through verse two at the start of our passage. It says here that then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. The ESV actually has a bit more of a closer literal translation. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, lamented. They cried out, they wailed. Something is not right. Something's missing. Lord, what is wrong? Now, after 20 plus years, the Israelite ground is finally fertile for repentance. But they're not there yet. They need a faithful leader. And as with the book of Judges that comes before this book, after years of judgment, after turning from God, of turning to every other option to try and fix their problem, the people finally cry out to God. And as with the book of Judges, it is at this point that God raises up a judge, a leader for his people. Who's it gonna be? And what is he going to do? His arrival demands three responses for the Israelites and what we are to learn from tonight. And these will be our three points. Obey his message, trust his rescue, and enjoy peace under his reign. So our first point, verses three to seven, obey God's leader. So who's the leader? Have a look with me. First word, first two words of verse three. So Samuel, Samuel, we might have forgotten about this guy had it not been for the name of the book. Uh, we last heard of Samuel two decades ago at the end of chapter three. At that time, he was recognized as a prophet of the Lord and his word came to all of Israel. Even earlier in the book, we read of him as a boy serving the Lord as an honorable priest. And now, with very few words of introduction, God chooses to give his appointed leader this platform to address the nation. He brings a message of repentance and a prayer of intercession. So the first point, repent. 
Let's look at what he has to say. Verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This is a message of repentance. What does returning to the Lord look like? Well, it's more than their current state of just mourning, of lamenting, of wailing to God. Although that is a good starting point quite often. We need to see that there is something about ourselves and our world around us that is broken. But Samuel spells out for the Israelites what is necessary for their repentance. First of all, rid yourselves of foreign gods. These are Baals and Ashtoreths, as verse 4 tells us. The gods of the Philistines and Canaanites. Gods of power, of sensuality, of sex, of fertility. The Philistines had previously beaten us in battle, so there must be some power to them, the Israelites were probably thinking. And they seemed pretty attractive gods to follow. That was certainly true for Israel's former leaders, Hophni and Phinehas. They were sleeping with women, not in private, not out of sight, but at the front of their version of the temple, of God's holy tabernacle. This sexual conduct was woven prominently in and through their society. But Samuel declares these are false gods, leading to frustration, not flourishing life. Now these idols, these gods, they aren't confined to the pages of ancient history, are they? Our world offers seductive pleasures and and promises endless satisfaction, and our hearts crave after this instant gratification and prosperity. But Samuel's message is still relevant. They are false gods, destructive. Can you see it? Rid yourselves of foreign gods. Rather, they are to commit themselves to the Lord and serve him only. This is intimate, covenantal language. Stop prostituting yourselves off to lesser things and cleave to God as the one true loving God of all. Resolve in your hearts and minds to be faithful by giving your whole self to him and serve him only. Live out that mindset in every area of your life. This is the fitting response to a God of love and mercy. And by doing all this, what is the promise of this complete act of repentance? Have a look, end of verse three. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. He will rescue you. He will carry you to safety. Now let's not forget who first raised up the Philistines in the first place. It was the Lord Almighty, a fitting judgment to teach his people to depend on him. 
Now, it's not just enough to hear this message of repentance. It demands a response. So how will the people respond? Verse four, they put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and they serve the Lord only. They rightly obeyed God's raised up leader. And therefore, he can now intercede to God for them. So he'll intercede for them in verses five and six. Samuel gathers them to Mizpah, a place historically known where God would would be a witness of covenantal renewal. You can see that in Genesis 31. Samuel is to teach the people afresh to practice their repentance and he will represent their appeal of forgiveness to God. He does this with a corporate gathering and with self-denial of water and food as helpful reminders that they are to depend on God first and foremost. And as individuals and and as a group, they confess in verse six, we have sinned against the Lord. Now, if you are here tonight and you are unfamiliar with the Bible or Christianity, this pattern that we see in verses two to six, this is the gospel for you and I today. That unfulfillment, that guilt, that shame in your life, all points to the fact that there is something wrong, something broken. And the problem isn't out there, it's in here. But this is the gospel because it is good news. Hear the authority of scripture today. If you turn away from false gods of the idols of this world, if you commit yourself to love and serve God and God alone with your whole being, he will rescue you from the punishment of your sin. Don't let 20 years pass before looking to make things right. The Israelites heard this message of repentance and responded with confession and asking God through his appointed leader for forgiveness. Now, Samuel called them to repent and to intercede for them. But was God in any of this? What we've essentially had is the theory, the gospel theory of repentance. But what will it look like when heat's applied, when there's a practical application? Well, that's immediately what we get, immediately after in this story from verse seven onwards. It's time to put the theory to the test in the form of an impending Philistine army. Now, would the Israelites hold to that commitment of faith that they've made? Would Samuel be a faithful leader, unlike the leaders before him? And above all, and most importantly for you and I tonight, can God and will God rescue his repentant people out of the hands of their enemies? Let's look at verses seven to 12 together. Our benchmark for this test of faith ought to come from chapter four, the last battle scene. There, 
the Israelites were filled with self-righteous arrogance before the, the fight even took place. They then take matters into their own hands by wheeling out the Ark of the Covenant to try and swing things in their favor. But they lost handsomely and they end up fleeing. And the story ends with a child being named Ichabod, which means no glory, as God removes his glory with the Ark of the Covenant being taken into Philistine territory. That was chapter four. How is chapter seven going to compare? Well, verse seven, they begin with fear. Have a look with verse seven with me. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Philistines heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. They have a fear of the Philistines, but they also have a rightful fear of the Lord their God who they know is the only one who can help them. They are helpless otherwise. They don't take matters into their own hands, but instead they turn in faith to the leader God has raised up, to Samuel. This is our second point. Now, with the enemy drawing near, what is Samuel going to do? What weapon would you go for? Now, there were no tanks or aircraft in those days to go into battle. It was more likely to be iron chariots. They were pretty formidable in those days. Would you maybe have like archers at the back, foot soldiers out front? Or maybe this is the time, this is the time to wheel out the Ark of the Covenant again. Can you imagine the damage that thing would do? What does Samuel do? He doesn't grab an ark. Have a look at verse nine. He grabs a lamb a lamb, and he offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord and cries out on Israel's behalf. <laughs> what, what a time for a religious ceremony. And yet, this shows a massive contrast to Israel's former leaders. Back in chapter two, um, when they were offering up sacrifices, they were by force taking all the juicy bits of the sacrifices for themselves and getting fat off it. But here, Samuel gives it all to God. This is the message Samuel's heart is conveying here. I have nothing to offer you, Lord, nothing on behalf of these people. Not in tabernacle worship, not out here on the battlegrounds. It is only in, by your mercy that we are not struck down in either place. And how does verse nine end? And the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him. This is a cry of one man. Compared with chapter four, where the entire Israelite camp roars, where the ground shakes, where the Philistine camp, however many miles away, could hear it, and they were scared. And yet that battle, they lost 
And here we have the cry of one solitary man, a blameless representative for all the people, made pure through the blood of a lamb. And the request is heard by the God of the universe. And he acts. Have a look at verse 10 and and picture what is going on, the order in which it's happening. While Samuel, while Samuel is still busy offering up the sacrifice, the Philistines move forward to make the first strike. But they have no claim over the Israelites anymore. Judgment has been lifted. That day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Previously, it was the Israelites that were struck down and fleeing. This time, it's the Philistines. But there is no denying who this victory belongs to. It's the Lord Almighty. Want any more evidence that that this is the Lord's doing? Flip with me back to chapter one. Chapter one. Uh, Chapter two, sorry, verse nine. Have a look at chapter two, verse nine. This is a prayer of Hannah, Samuel's mum. From verse nine. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder, same word, thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. This is the Lord's victory. And this is not a moment for the Israelites to be patting themselves on the back after victory is won. And Samuel knows this, have a look at verse 12 back in chapter seven. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. There is something to be learned here for everyone passing by Ebenezer from here on out, both for this generation and the generations to come. The Lord remains faithful to his promises. The Lord raises up leaders through whom he will rescue. For all who repent, who rid themselves of false gods and commit themselves to the Lord only, the Lord will surely rescue them out of judgment. Samuel is saying this is true that day and every day that has gone before them. What an incredible story of rescue of God through his faithful leader. And while that was true of every day in history up to that point, God's faithfulness has stretched out into the future. This is fulfilled completely and fully in the coming of God's perfect prophet, priest, and king. His one and only son, Jesus Christ, His first words that he utters in Mark's gospel are this. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. 
Repent and believe the good news. Jesus, he not only performs a lamb sacrifice in the face of an impending enemy power, he is the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world through his death on the cross. While Samuel once intercedes on behalf of the people, crying out to God, Christ cries out on the cross, it is finished, destroying the power of the greatest enemy, sin. And even now, today, he goes on interceding for us on our behalf, appealing to the Father to count those who believe in him as righteous on account of his blood. Friends, we must trust and obey this eternal, victorious leader, Jesus Christ. Sin and judgment remains on those who refuse his rule. But surrender does not make you a prisoner of war, a second-class citizen. You get to enjoy the victory, the splendors of the victory, a life of peace under the gracious rule of God's appointed leader. This is what we see in the final part of our passage, verses 13 to 17. Briefly, let's look at what it looks like under Samuel's rule. It looks like peace restored. This is not a one-off victory for the Israelites under their leader Samuel, but it's a part of a longer lifetime of peace. The Philistines stopped invading, and moreover, the Israelites are able to redeem some of the parts of the kingdom previously snatched by the Philistines. The kingdom under God's appointed judge is marked by peace and restoration. Back to the way things ought to be. And once again, this is only possible because it is God's work at play here. His hand remaining against the Philistines. And we also see in this kingdom, there is still a faithful judge judging in verses 15 to 17. While God's hand is, is working externally to suppress the Philistines, he is also at work internally through the faithful judge Samuel again all the days of his life as he fulfills his God-given role. The judge judges. Meaning, as, as one commentator puts it, he sets things right in Israel by his words to the people from God and by his words to God for the people. I'll say that again. He sets things right in Israel by his words to the people from God and by his words to God for the people. The act of repentance, putting idols to death and serving God only, this is worked out over a lifetime. And this applies to us as well. What are we to make of an incredible story like this? Friends, those of you who would not call yourselves Christians, I hope you have heard and are convinced tonight that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king that we need to submit to and seek forgiveness from. It's his sacrificial blood that can make you clean. 
And it's his victory over sin and death that makes you a conqueror in Christ. But it is only for those who accept Christ's kingship. The judgment that falls on the Philistines will be the same for all those who reject God's king. Why not take the words of the Israelites, I have sinned against the Lord, and you too can experience the Lord's rescue. Now for those of you here who are followers of Christ, you have a choice to make. Are you going to look more like a chapter four Israelite or a chapter seven one? The Christian life is marked by threats, enemies, and trouble, as Satan is determined to snatch you out of the Lord's hand. But the Lord sets these out in our paths for our refinement. When threats and enemies come in the Christian life, to whom will you go? Will you respond as in chapter four, relying on trinket religion, which ultimately puts you at the center? Or will you look like chapter seven, genuinely repentant and eager to depend on Christ to make a justified claim, a justified cry on your behalf that you are blameless in God's sight and to put death to sin in your life? Will you also listen and obey God's under shepherds in the church who are there to lead you well? There is a a coming day of peace and full restoration throughout all of creation when all will be made new under the leadership of Christ the King. And finally, just the point for leaders, those with responsibilities either here in the church or maybe even at home with a wife or children. Note the pattern of godly leadership here. Samuel's first priority is gospel proclamation. That's the first thing he does. And this ought to be the chief priority over your ministry or family too. And secondly, note your humble standing before God as you individually and for those under your care you love and serve. We must cling to Christ in everything. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your remaining faithfulness to your promises. That if we stop chasing after false gods and commit ourselves to the Lord and serve him only, you will rescue us from the eternal judgment that our sins deserve. Lord, thank you for this rescue through the Lamb of God and the forgiveness offered by Jesus. Help us to run to him when the accuser would condemn us and help us put death to, put sin to death in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, who intercedes for us, we pray. Amen.